Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you want to question my morals, do it later. There aren't any to question. The great and boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. David, it's our first recording session of the new year. What are your New Year's resolutions for this podcast? You know, I, I like almost predictably, I have just enough hipster in me to hate New Year's resolutions. Really? Um, yeah, but but maybe I just hate any goal of self-improvement because I'm so arrogant as to think of myself as... <laughs> You've already reached Perfect. the pinnacle. I've, I've reached the pinnacle. Only I've allowed only reason to uh, to guide my actions. Um, so my goal for this podcast would be to course you into learning how to reason like I do so that we might achieve mutual goals that are beneficial. <laughs> That's a coded way of introducing our topic, which um, this is part of a new series that we're doing and, and we're going to each choose like a classic philosophy paper that's me and 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 you'll do a classic psychology paper and we'll discuss that paper i'll just send you my vita and then we can we can just (laughs) i don't know if i have any classic paper i don't think i would ever consider anything that i wrote classic um the seminal maybe but for other reasons um the drenched in semen (laughs) exactly uh, yeah, as you say, more serious, but the but only the content might be taken more seriously because I doubt we have the capacity to. We're probably more serious about Mr. Robot than we'll be about Isaiah Berlin. <laughs> that's that's um, right. That's right. Yeah. It's it's a topic that would be more. I don't know more along the lines of what a normal philosophy podcast would talk is, about. I was going to ask: Is your New Year's resolution just to be more like the partially examined life? Is that is that the secret that you've been like plotting? <laughs> It's kind of what they do, isn't it? I guess they take a book. Um, a whole no. book? This already felt like homework, man. This is just going to be a, a short series, right? It's just going to be right. four. And we might even break it up if we have some other good idea. Uh, yeah. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, what do you think of this for New Year's resolutions, though? Um, I read this somewhere, and it's a great idea. Rather than do it for the year, which you'll, nobody has ever successfully done a New Year's resolution for a whole year, you do it by month, and you choose a different resolution at the beginning of each month. Yeah, no, that's much better. Psychologically, Like, I think it's right. Plus, think about how many years we plausibly have left. Like that doesn't even give us that much time for like that many resolutions. Right. So so really, you know, we're we're steadily hitting the the decline part of our prime. So we better we gotta like get to setting resolutions. If we want to improve ourselves as human beings, the problem is a month goes by so fast. I'm like Well, you can always keep it. Actually, one of my resolutions led to an awkward what moment. My daughter walked in on me while I was Don't meditating. even say it. Oh, <laughs> no, not <laughs> meditating. You, that is embarrassing. Yeah, that was. At least, at she made fun the of other me one is the normal. <laughs> for the rest of the afternoon, she made fun of me. It's like, what that's are you a doing? Good, that's a good one. I did you like get a like a book? Not really. Like, it's something I'd done on and off before, and honestly, I think the seed was planted when for when the Sam Harris, you know, came on and yeah, talked about yeah, that yeah. a little bit. Um, but then 
I went to this restorative justice in the school's class. I just sort of sat in and watched and observed it. And one of the things they did, they just did like a five minute meditation. And then so I did it because everybody else was doing it. And it was and it felt great. And I, and I thought, God, why don't we, you know, just do this. So, yeah, like 10 to 15 minutes a day. It's it's great. It calms the mind down, gets you That's off like- Twitter. That's a great idea. I, I was listening to a podcast called Cortex. I'll put a link to it. Um, and they were talking, they talk about a lot about, uh, it's a guy who does these videos for YouTube and he's quite popular on YouTube. He does these like instructional ones. He works at home for, for himself and makes a career out of it. So a lot of what the conversation is, is like having sort of the discipline to achieve the yeah. goals in like a really unstructured environment. And they had a discussion about just just this. And he was saying that, he listens to so many podcasts that he would be all like all the time have things in like his headphones in his ears. And I realize, yeah, like I don't have quiet moments. I, I rarely have quiet moments. I feel increasingly the need to have something going on. Like even to fall asleep, I play like boring tech podcasts. Yeah, you know? I do that sometimes it's, too. And and sometimes I'll catch myself like I'm just getting out of the shower. All I need to do is get dressed. Wait a minute, I don't have like a podcast to listen to right yeah, now. Yeah, I know it's like a desperation. <laughs> it's such a crutch. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. So, so you got to force yourself sometimes to just focus okay, on what you're doing. I'll I'll do. I'm gonna do that for this month. All right, wait, wait. Do I have to wait till February first? Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, you can't do I it can't meditate before. until then. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so to to get to the opening topic that that I think is actually really relevant to not only the essay. But Wait, did I we say to, what the essay is? No, no. Go it's, ahead. It's uh, Isaiah Berlin's Two Concepts of Liberty. Very famous essay in political philosophy. Still influential today. Still. Yeah. And I it's amazing that he also wrote that song, Take My Breath Away. <laughs> that was my, that was the in lieu of my that, my Detroit uh, Irving story. Berlin. <laughs> no, it's just a group called Berlin. Yeah. Two concepts of liberty. But yeah, so but our opening topic was something that I randomly tweeted uh, texted to you that actually is pretty relevant to a lot of our discussion. But it's also just I knew it would scratch that itch of you with your like love of sports and all all the shit talking you do about you know, what what is the team you like. The Buffalo Bills? Yeah, I'm a huge Bills fan. <laughs> um, and it's it's uh, about a high school in Wisconsin that sent out an email to its students, I guess just discouraging the... Well, no, it was the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association. Right, the Federation, right, the Athletic Association yeah. that, that governs the interscholastic high school sports, um, trying to discourage people from, from chanting... Um, Things like air ball or what, like scoreboard, scoreboard or whatever. <laughs> so uh, apparently, over. <laughs> and over. there's a net there. That's a that's a uh, taunt that I haven't heard of. Yeah, I haven't. You know, I'm not uh, even sure what it means. There's a net there. I think it's a volleyball taunt. I think, <laughs> right? There's like when people just hit it right into the net. Oh, um, oh I see. It, so, oh, okay, I thought it was all basketball. But yeah, no, no, because no, because yeah. in fact, one of the people who got in trouble was this girl. Well, actually, she was a basketball player, but um, she tweeted out like "fuck the WIAA," like, and shit. she got suspended from for five games. Um, but it was it was a tweet that was in reference to that email. She had a little screenshot of the email saying "don't taunt." Yeah, which uh, sorry, I, I have. I have I'm of two minds because I went I played interest classic sports when I was in high school. I wasn't good, but I was on junior varsity basketball and we played other schools and um, people chanted that shit all the time. Um, But we had like as like the Christian school that we were, we were like very proud of our sportsmanship, unlike Tom, Tom Brady. Um, like we would win every year the sportsmanship award because we weren't the kind of school to do that. Like, you know, how, how good were you at winning the actual games? I mean, congratulations we, on the sportsmanship award, we, <laughs> but like the participation award, yeah. we were, we were good at basketball, but we were in the small school category. So we were just playing against equally matched teams where like our tallest guy was like, you know, six, four or something. Like we couldn't hang against like the real high schools. Like there was nobody like we play real high schools in summer league and they would just be dunking all over us. So you had no choice but to be good sports. 
Well, well, we they would play, kick your like, ass. We actually, we would, but when we played against schools our size, we would win quite a bit. But the schools our size, you know, yeah. so we would play like the the an Armenian school called the Holy Martyrs. We played California School for the Deaf Riverside, which was actually a really interesting experience, like to play against a deaf school because they don't chant, but they really really yell at you when you're shooting free throws in a really distressing way <laughs> so why are you like what are you of different minds about like I, you could I be good sports the nobody's i don't think anybody no, has the view that you have to shout airball. no uh, no i think you... i think it's a good a sign of a good a, a good character to to not do that you know like but on the other hand it it's fun like it yeah. it really is like there's nothing better than bringing a team down by especially a team that's like arrogant by taunting them that way like i know it can get mean but fuck for fuck's sake you know like so i mean there's two different issues there's the issue of whether you should like chant if you're at a game you know do you start chanting daryl daryl that's what the red, the red Sox used to always ch- chant to uh, daryl strawberry i think everybody chanted that to daryl strawberry after a while <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's better than chanting crackhead <laughs> but then there's the separate issue which i think people are angry about in in, in wisconsin is this idea that some that there would be a directive from above to curb that kind of activity. Uh, yeah, I mean, they weren't so they weren't punitive. Like that girl got punished for the tweet. Really, they were right. they were just setting out saying like, "Hey, it would be great." We actively discourage the chanting of these things. Yeah, um, this has the structure of all these controversies, <laughs> right? You start out with something that's a little annoying and that does suggest some degree of coddling, you know, this idea that we shouldn't chant airball. Like, it's like a fundamental human right to be able to chant airball <laughs> when, when somebody is an airball. But then, isn't it funny how, how far we've come? But then <laughs> there's no reason for this to be a New York Times article, right? As they make clear, the, the people weren't punishing any schools or any fans they were just sending out like a strong recommendation maybe even a directive to try to curb that behavior but uh, but they make it very clear at least in the article that there's no punitive measures there's no there's no measures enforcement measures that are in place that weren't in place before right do you think then that the students reaction tweeting out fuck you wia yeah or eat shit that's eat right shit. um eat uh, shit wia um whether that I don't see any problem with that unless she betrayed some sort of like private trust or something, you know, like by making something public that wasn't supposed to be public or something like that. But yeah, right, she should right. be totally able to do that. And that's what you get if you send out that kind of weaselly little email. But seriously, if you're going to like forbid us from praying to Jesus in high school, then at least let us tweet out each shit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite part of the article is this person who says, I don't think it's inevitable that people need to chant airball or whatever, and I don't think it's inevitable that people need to taunt their opponents in sports, and I think it's perfectly fair to question that. And then the last line, he says, regarding the Tempest in Wisconsin, he said, I see that actually as a, as a sort of an ugly and messy little necessary debate. It's a necessary debate. It's All like right. the opposite of necessary. It's like... <laughs> You How probably sp- shouldn't be talking. We should not be talking about it. The idea that it's a net like uh, this is just it's finally happened. We have to face this debate right now over whether whether to ban air like not even ban taunt. like <laughs> this is like that's we've come to a point in our country where that's a that's a pressing concern. We can't we can't hide from it any longer. It's a good sign. It's a good sign when when that's all we're concerned about. But it is just a mark of like the fucking like I I can just see the pitch to the editor. Like you know how there's all these coddling stories. Right. Check this out. Yeah. Exactly. But that's how all these things go. Yeah. I actually would like to send out an email to the APA um, asking that at conferences people be a little less combative in their questions. Just <laughs> just saying. Just, just say, what's the equivalent? Is there an equivalent to airball in a philosophy debate? Like, uh, invalid. 
Or what about in a psychology talk? Would it be P hacking? P hack, yeah. Speaking of that, there, I, apparently, like I've been doing all these power poses before <laughs> uh, before our podcast for nothing. Someone tweeted us on Slate. Uh, an, another, yet another, it's very hard to keep track of all the unreplicated, debunked results that people make millions of dollars off of um, by giving TED Talks. People like you. <laughs> uh, My results are replicable. Yeah. Um, thank you. But I guess um, that power pose one, I'd, I'd, I'd never even heard of it, but apparently I'm the only person in America that hadn't heard of it. Yeah, it was one of the most popular. So I should say Amy Cuddy, who gave it that doc and wrote the book, is is a friend of mine. Good, so, good but that of course, sure. <laughs> it is. Um, no and she she just released a book uh, on on it, and it's come you know it's, as as with many of these findings on whatever embodiment or priming and stuff like that, people have questioned the whether or not these experiments are replicable or whether they're a true finding. She's certainly like it's one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. And she's like gets recognized on the streets. She's like friends with famous people now gets to go to all of these things. So, like you know, I think that she's inspiring people. But there's an additional question. Like if your results are replicable, then then they're replicable. If they're not, that's the beauty of science. Like there's no there's no discussion to be had other than let's just fucking do more science and see if it's replicable. And if it's not, then you say like your next book should be like. Why I was wrong about power pose? Yeah, never that, mind. The next, like that should be like the next, the <laughs> second big book of every social psychologist will just be never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Although now you know, but instead it's going to be you know power posing for teenagers, power posing for Jews. <laughs> Yeah, maybe power posing in the workplace. I don't think that works for Jews. Power (laughs) posing. So they just. I always imagine that it's like Moses with his staff parting the Red Sea. You know, isn't that like a power pose? That also doesn't work. Try (laughs) it. (laughs) Oh, you little faith. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be back to talk about Isaiah Berlin after these messages. Not really. (laughs) This beat. This this awesome dope beat. to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Dave Bazaar from Cornell University. I always forget to say that. We'd like to take a moment to thank everybody for their support. We've gotten a lot of good tweets, some really interesting emails, actually. Um, they they keep us going. They like feed our, our motivation and our egos. So we appreciate it. You can contact us at, uh, by emailing us verybadwizards at gmail.com or tweeting us at Tamler at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. And you can support us in other ways, some more tangible you could donate to us by going to our support page and and giving us a PayPal donations, which again we thank you guys um, quite a bit for for all of those that the holiday spirit that you've shown us the Hanukkah spirit. I mean, yes, thank. Um, or you could just click the Amazon link and do your regular shopping, and we'll get a little piece of of whatever it is that you buy. Um, and you can I remember finally... to do it before making any expensive purchase on Amazon. I know we. It, like if you buy a plasma TV yeah. or whatever, just or like textbooks. You know, that's right. Textbooks, sex toys. So yeah. And rate us on iTunes. We always get a kick out of it. And I think that it makes people more likely to find our podcast and it can make Tamler really happy if we can get past the partially examined life guys. So, so thank you guys. Oh, and we love the, sh- the shirts, pictures, yeah, <laughs> pictures of people wearing the shirts. Always get a kick out of it. I'm w- the day I see someone in the wild wearing one of our shirts. I'm going to like pee myself a little. Then we retire. 
Yeah. And then we retire. And we just, I'm just going to walk around with a microphone just so I can drop it. And we'll try to come up with a new, you know, slightly yeah, new we design. Do another if you're, a des- if you're a designer and you have nothing else to do. So we're going to talk today about a very famous paper in political philosophy. Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit why you chose this one. You know, it's funny. Um, it is a paper that I've taught in the past. You know, one of the things actually in our previous episode, uh, Campus Politics, which uh, I don't want to rehash again, but it was something that uh, Vlad said, and it was on the question of freedom of speech. The question was whether there should be some sort of censorship from faculty so that students felt more comfortable. But the way Vlad posed the debate was if the the university imposes censorship on professors, that will enable students from marginalized communities to have the freedom to express their own thoughts. And without that censorship, their freedom is being curtailed because they feel silenced. Right. And it's and it's an interesting thing because I think that right there is a very small sort of microcosm of these two senses of freedom that Berlin is talking about. And the restriction of negative freedom would be the restriction by, say, the university just saying, okay, professors are not allowed to use these words, say. And I think that, the kind that of freedom that the, Vlad is right. talking about is more along the lines of – because nobody is stopping. Nobody's actually preventing the, the, you know, the students from saying what they want. But rather what they lack is, you know, the ability to do it or to feel comfortable enough to express their opinions. And I think that's – and that's a different – you know, if it, if it is a kind of liberty, it's a different kind of liberty than the one that just allows you to do something without interference from above. Right. So that sort There's- of like got me thinking about this paper and then I, I think it's a fascinating, rich – endlessly rich paper and let me start by asking you it's it's probably one of the most famous ideas this idea of two concepts of liberty and certainly it's what made isaiah berlin famous it's still debated today but there's not an uncontroversial interpretation of what exactly isaiah berlin means by positive liberty so negative liberty is pretty straightforward it just means freedom from interference by some sort of government government, freedom from coercion by some sort of governing body. Right. And it's a, usually framed as, as an ex, something external to the individual um, but, in, in some sense of the word external that. But that, like a, a, a group of people external or, you know, some sort of. Uh, right. Or a despot or something yeah. or like a, like physical restraint, anything from physical restraints to right. tyrannical rule or, or the majority. Um, but it's not external you. in the sense of our genes and our environment right, right, right. or something like that. Right, 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 right. So it's yeah. not external in that sense. Um, yeah. So that's negative liberty is just freedom from interference. Positive liberty, it's a little less clear exactly what he's talking about. So what did you think? Um, I, had, I mean, to be honest, I did. I was having trouble with the distinction at first as well, um, and I I take it that what he means is the freedom to pursue those things that you want to pursue. So not that you're removing obstacles, but that you're fostering that you're fostering an environment with the making it easy for them to pursue some positive action. Do they have the opportunity to pursue opportunity? And that can include things like um, where you, you know, this actually reminds me of another debate that we don't want to rehash, which was about gender. Right. And I, and I take it that my claim was, I think what Berlin would call just a debate about positive, positive Liberty, where I was making some sort of argument that just by influencing the psychology of young women, we might give them a set of desires that they have, but that they wouldn't have had had their psychology just had the opportunity to develop in a different way. So right. so when you forced your daughter to play with dinosaurs and soldiers, you were restricting her negative liberty, but you were 
allegedly expanding her positive liberty. Right. And this is, I think, the the heart of of the interest. Like, I thought this essay was just chock full of really, really cool insight. But that does get to the tension of whether or not the goal of positive liberty can be used in to, in a way to uh, really oppress. Because if I if I say that, like, my daughter really needs the opportunity um, to become an engineer in this society. So I have to like only take her to like, you know, see, you know, movies about robots or documentaries about, about math and like only, and I forbid her from giving, getting, you know, playing with princesses all because I want, I want her to have the rat, what I believe as the true noble goal of a woman being an engineer. Then I've just come up with um, a justification for oppressing her in a different way. Right. Um, that is under the language of a positive liberty. Yeah. I, okay. I, so I think, say I'm not a political philosopher, so all, like all the political philosophers we're listening to might be cringing at my analysis of it, but that's that's at least what I took it. No, no, no. I think that's. I mean, I, I want to get to this, but I think that's his biggest fear is when the idea of expanding somebody's positive liberty becomes an excuse for <laughs> oppressing them, and that's that happens when you have this idea of a divided self. The self that actively wants something and that craves something versus, you know, like your daughter's true self who right. act – really – even though she says she doesn't want to be an engineer and play with robots and right. she says she wants to play with princess, that's not what she really wants. That's right. not what she truly wants. What she truly <laughs> wants is what I have in mind as her good and right. so I am going to take away – her ability to do the things that she says she wants and allow her to do the thing that her her best self or her rational self wants. Thank me later. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> we do do that with our kids, right? Like, I, mean, I think no that question. it's a great – absolutely. I mean, the, that's the time when it is appropriate to do so. That That is the one case in which we so clearly are in charge of developing – um, our children that like letting them do whatever they want. They would just eat Lucky Charms for every meal and and watch shitty Disney shows, right? So so we are uh, under the cry of positive freedom. Like I want their brains to develop well, so they have to eat vegetables. I want them to not you know be be completely coarse and philistines about art. So I want them to write your concern yeah. about um, totally. No, I mean, I'm very strict. It's literally the only way I'm a strict parent, but in terms of like the kinds of movies I want, I want her to be exposed to to great movies, great television, great books. And, you know, often my justification is once we start, say, look, once we, you loved this movie, like you loved right. Psycho when we saw Psycho, you loved His Girl Friday when we watched it, you thought it was hilarious. Like, I know you want, I know you want this, even though you're saying you don't want it, even though you're saying you want to watch Elf again or whatever. Right. I know right. that's not what you really want. You know, so I, so don't be silly. What is this war, war on Christmas? What a, come on. Elf is a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I like Elf. <laughs> but there's a, there's a limit to how many times that you, you could see it. Uh, uh, so let me back up for a second because I want to make sure that we, that we yeah. are clear yeah, about what we're talking about with positive liberty because he doesn't fully condemn the idea. He's just, I, I think he, he's, he's worried about two things. One, that we conflate two senses of liberty uh, when we shouldn't. And then right. the thing he's really worried about is the abuse of positive liberty. Which is great analytic philosophy for the record, right? Yeah. This, is the kind of, this is the kind of analysis that is insightful. And is I agree. Like this is a great – this is – I know I give an analytic philosophy and conceptual analysis a hard time all the uh, – but this is a, an absolutely fantastic and necessary. Yeah. I, I Maybe almost as necessary as the sportsmanship debate. This is a necessary <laughs> distinction. This idea of freedom to do what you want can be interpreted in two different ways, right? And, right. And, and those two different ways are the two different senses of negative and positive. The first way is nobody is stopping you from doing it. Right. right. Nobody is preventing you from doing it. That's one. Right. You're not on house arrest. That's the negative liberty sense. Right. But the second is that you're actually capable, that you have the ability to do the thing, that you have some control over your fate and your destiny. And so you're able to do the thing that you want to do. 
Right. And you know, this is this is written in the height of the Cold War. You've had you've had fascism, you've had Marxism, and Marx is was right about certain things where you can say, look, nobody's forcing these these workers, these laborers to to work, you know, 15-hour days, seven-day-a-week factory right. jobs. Nobody's compelling them. Nobody's coming to their house. There aren't soldiers coming to their house and making them work in the factories. But the idea that they're free not to do that if they want is ludicrous because – they they will starve and their families will starve right, if they don't right. do it the way the 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 structure of the you know the the free market economy that he that he's writing in the in the way that's set up and there so so i think berlin acknowledges this that there's some truth to this idea that we need positive liberty right. or else that negative liberty is worthless like, right and that and that the discussions just to distinguish like to make the the important distinction because or else you run the risk, as I think he points out, of using the language of negative liberty and then sort of just un- sort of underhanded switching into arguments about positive liberties. And those two things may require a whole different set of strategies um, to maximize or whatever to encourage. And so at the very least, what you don't want is for people to slip in. There is a way in which you'd be – I am more outraged by putting people in chains and not allowing them to you know, choose who to marry or what kind of job to have. And there is a different kind of outrage I have when there are children who don't get enough nutrition and they'll never have a shot at, at like becoming artists or engineers in society. They both make me mad, but you can't just insert the outrage for people in chains and the negative liberty and then – then mount arguments for the positive liberty on the basis of that outrage, because I think as he fears the lack of clarity there will just make you unwittingly start putting people in chains. And it will start making you, I mean, I think the thing that he finds most offensive is when you coerce people, but while you're coercing them, you're telling them that you're making them more free. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, you'll yeah. thank me later, buddy. You'll thank me later. Yeah. I have to say, so I'm sure that we'll we'll uh, talk about quotes that we like from this, but like, yeah. I haven't highlighted this much in a long time. So this was yeah. like actually a really good part, maybe because I have an iPad Pro with a pencil. And he's a very highlightable. He's highlightable. I, I, I'm fighting the urge to just read these passages. Just to give one example, and then I want to talk about this idea of splitting the self, because this is, you know, this has its origin, at least in Plato, if not before. Um, but before that, just to give an example, I think, of of positive liberty that comes at the expense of negative liberty, think of compulsory education, public education laws, right? Right. That you make, you force, the law forces parents to send their kids or to educate their kids up to a certain age. And the children are forced to do that too. Now, the idea of that is (laughs) that this will make them or give them the opportunity um, to pursue the kinds of things that they're going to want to pursue and that they should want to pursue. But I think what Berlin would insist upon, and I think he's absolutely right, is don't pretend that you're not restricting their negative freedom, say the negative freedom of the family, the negative freedom of the of the children. Recognize that this is a that you are sacrificing this bit of negative liberty in order to bring about this good, um, which you right. can call Like making you go to Girl Scout plays. <laughs> what was what? the thing that you complained about when you had to go to like a play that Eliza put on? Well, um, it was these Girl Scout, it was a Girl, Girl Scout camp, a one Girl Scout camp. There wasn't a theater camp or anything. And then we had to sit, <laughs> sit through like a two hour fucking uh, like show at the end when they, they couldn't dance. It's coercion. They, they coerced you. They absolutely <laughs> coerced me, and the, but the, but they were, you know, it was like uh, the, the sort of the Marxists, like the they the, the parents were were enabling them. They were like <laughs> the, their faces; they had been indoctrinated by it. They I want to like see laughing like a, and videotaping. I want to see like a Diego Rivera, Rivera mural of like parents at a Girl Scout. <laughs> <laughs> 
everybody's face is like shining and happy and then there's <laughs> me that's just fuming just like do you uh, want do you want your daughter to unlock opportunities um <laughs> yeah. let's take a quick break and then i want to come back and talk about this idea of the divided self and how it can lead to a totalitarian form of government Sorry. and then the pluralism that i think ultimately is what he champions at the end yeah. of the essay Oh God! Let me in on it. Oh God! Oh please! Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're talking about Isaiah Berlin's fantastic, magnificent essay, Two Concepts of Liberty. And we were talking about positive liberty. And I think Berlin recognizes the need for positive liberty and also recognizes, I think, you know, that, that, that Marx up to a point is right, that freedom from interference doesn't do you any good if you can't feed yourself or clothe yourself or get an education or you know the all you can have all the negative freedom you want and it won't allow you to have any kind of healthy fulfilling life but i think the type of positive liberty that's his target that's berlin's target that he's really worried about is it begins in a kind of philosophy or ideology where a person's self is divided into two, you know, Plato did this into three, that there is one self, which is your reason, your rational self. And this is the self that always wants to pursue the thing that you should pursue. And mm -hmm. then there's the empirical self, the self that can be a slave to desires, to emotions. And when you divide the self like that, if you equate the rational self with the true self, this will permit you to ignore the actual wishes of men or societies to bully and oppress and torture them in the name and on behalf of their real selves. This idea that you are actually making them freer because you are making them more able to pursue what they ought to pursue, what their rational self wants to pursue, even though they're telling you that they don't want to pursue it. Yeah. And he has, it's a tempting step to take. And one that I have to say that, you know, I at times am, am very tempted by the, the idea that if, if you had like, take Star Trek, like not to bring Star Trek in this, but I'm going to, um, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry had this view of future man, future humankind, where he thought, look, like once we take care of all of the basic needs, there's a need for money, there's just free energy, like there's food, everybody, we, then you will be free to pursue all the interests that you, that you might want. You might not know until we took care of all of your physical needs and all of your basic emotional needs. Um, and then I presented to you three career options. You would never know until like I had presented to you that you wanted to be an artist. Um, right. How are you to know that? I know that it is the it is in your best interest to show to show you that once I unleash your powers of reason, you yes. will see that it is better to to, you know, do this than it is to do that. And like that strong assumption is one that comes, I think. This is the the insight here that Berlin gives is the 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 belief, perhaps misguided empirical belief, that if we all had the ability 
to the capacity to reason and the ability to exercise that reason, we would agree on this shit like that, that, and that talk, talk about something that is critical to ethical debate. If, if that isn't true, then shit just gets really hard. Right. And I think that it's an insistence that it, that something, maybe it's not the numinal self like Kant said, maybe it's, you know, not the utilitarian calculations that Mill wanted, but something, man, we got to agree on something. Um, well, yeah. So this is, so he's talking about Plato and then Kant and Hegel. And he says, the common assumption of these thinkers and of many as schoolmen before them and Jacobin and communist after them is that the rational ends of our true natures must coincide or be made to coincide, however violently our poor, ignorant, desire-ridden, passionate, empirical selves may cry out against this process. Freedom is not freedom to do what is irrational or stupid or wrong. To force empirical selves into the right pattern is no tyranny but liberation." And, you know, Plato is the the big target there because that's, you know, this is exactly what he's doing in the Republic is forcing, you know, empirically the empirical, passionate, desire and ignorant self to do the thing that their true self wants to do and calling that some sort of liberation, a a self-liberation. Right. You could view this, I mean, it's like there are a lot of sort of um, obvious ways in which we use a similar metaphor. We talked about with our kids, but we talk about it with addicts, right? Like you, right. you, it's not, you, you want the addict to want to be sober, right? And you know that the addict in their current state of mind cannot have that desire. And so you, you know, you lock them up and, you know, and like in all those movies where they, somebody gets clean. They yeah. clean they clean up and then later on they're like, Oh, thank you so much. Right. That's like what that. I really wanted to do. But my addiction was stopping me. Yeah. And you know, you know, that's a very clean, straightforward example of that where some part of them really did want to give up their addiction. Right. Right. But you could extend this idea and this is to where really no part of them wants to give that's the that and that right. That's the little magic move, which is like I know I know that you don't yet know. Yeah. Um, that you want this. You can't even conceive that you'll want it. But I promise that when like when I do the little en- achievement unlocked on you, you'll realize I was right all along. There's um, a term for this that kind of I'm, I'm blanking on the term, but like I, I think about it in the context of like uh, the women who wear the burqa and having laws right. that ban the burqa. And you have women who don't, you know, who actively protest these laws right. and who want to wear the burqa. And you say, yeah, but that's because you're part of this patriarchal system that has ingrained these desires and feelings and beliefs into you. And that's what we're freeing you from is this uh, you're in this prison of this ideology, this that of this patriarchal ideology. And that's what we're letting you loose from or from, you know, in the female circumcision debate is the same thing where, you know, a lot of women really want to do this and you have to actively stop them from doing it. But you're saying, but you don't know that right. you don't want this. Right. You, haven't you really given, don't want you, it. You have you've you essentially were saying you've been brainwashed. And, and yeah. there is a lot of a lot of, I think, um unwitting and sometimes not unwitting condescension in, in these arguments. And I think that, you know, I having talked to to some students in the Middle East, in they're in countries where it's not required or anything, but they talk about how, how much safer they feel when they're wearing the traditional headscarf, um, because men don't fuck with them as much. And I can imagine that banning that because I think that it is just an, you know, an expression of the patriarchy might to them be just totally fucked up and patronizing. And we'll get to the pluralism part, but this is why at least like you want to you want to make damn sure you've talked to people exactly about and understand maybe even the psychology of it before you start going around saying like this is perfect i mean or else like and i think also you want to be clear that if you are banning people from wearing a burqa you're not making them freer right you are taking uh, a liberty away that they yeah. have in the and- in in the deep faith that doing so will will unleash their other all these other liberties yeah. right yeah 
but but it, it's easy to fall into that language. And I think this is why this is such an important paper of like, but what we're actually doing is freeing their minds from the prison of their current like belief system, which has been imposed by a, you know, a religious patriarchy. Right. right. That is that is inherently irrational. And, I, you know, I want to ask you, because this reminds me of a conversation I had with my friend Nikki, who's who's a philosophy PhD student, um, when she was talking about Rawls' views on on public justice. And I was telling her about you and I had a conversation on the podcast about, you know, the, the, the magic of the magic of Rawls separating himself from all just sort of idiosyncratic desires and wishes yeah. and beliefs and using his, you know, true rational self to to dictate what would actually be the best for for society in just determining what's good for as as groups like for what's, what's fair what's for what's what's, the, what's just yeah, what's right? a just and, society would be and so if without the belief that like there is some magic you can tap into that would make people agree on this stuff like it is a pretty depressing like I know that that Berlin ends this with this sort of like pluralism should be taken seriously but it depresses me like yeah, because it I'm does. not sure. I, I figured it, it would. <laughs> the Kantian is depressed, and you pluralism sounds like a good word, but in fact, it can mean that like I now lose the ability to actually say it's you. Pre- pretty much shouldn't be cutting off people's genitals. Like I don't want to <laughs> lose that ability. Well, no, like I don't think that you lose the ability to say that and to have that view and even that you that you might even be right. What you I think the thing that he is really concerned about the, is this idea that there is a single utopian vision about yeah. what's rational for everyone. There certainly right. could be things that are wrong for everybody. Does this mean that heaven can't exist or is there just multiple heavens? And your or... Kantian heaven can't exist either. <laughs> I uh, want to go to the... Actually, this is this is a good lead in what you just said to these assumptions that he thinks ultimately yeah. leads to this contradictory idea where despotism right. um, equates to liberation or, or, or freedom. And he looks at the, assum- the, the basic assumptions and we'll, we'll post a link, to, obviously, to the, yeah. to the essay. But this is worth it. I haven't pulled up. It's, it's worth reading this, yeah. this in, the, in a nutshell. Uh, um, you want to read it? Sure. Let me state them once more, these, these assumptions um, that he think might be at fault. First, that all men have one true purpose and one only that of rational self-direction. Second, you're you're like check. Yeah, I know, absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, I know. That. I don't want to agree. For for all of those those listeners who every once in a while ask you why you give me shit about being a Kantian, this is why. This I don't is even, why. I don't even, I'm, I, I'm not being a Kantian. I just want the noumena to be heaven. Um, second, that the ends of all rational beings must of necessity fit into a single universal harmonious pattern, which some men may be able to discern more clearly than others. So by necessity, right? It's not even that like they would link up out of like that, that, that just like all rational beings who desire rational things, they'll link into this. Harmonious yeah. And pattern, so the which perfect is, social engineer will be able to link them all up. Exactly, um, which, which is which is me. Third, that all conflict and consequently all tragedy is due solely to the clash of reason with the irrational or the insufficiently rational, the immature and underdeveloped elements in life, whether individual or communal, and that such clashes are in principle avoidable and for holy rational beings impossible. That's great. Like angels, yeah. like angels can't possibly conflict. Why? Like they're all rational. They're following the right rules. Right. It's like it's three plus three equals six, no matter where you go. That's right. like, why can't we have the equivalent social rules um, that would be like, hey, you know, if I have this desire, you have this desire, like we can actually we like, can. oh, you're right. I should have this one that doesn't. And whenever there's some sort of, you know, moral disagreement, <clears throat> it's because one side or another. I mean, this is the implicit assumption of most moral realist views. It's because one person isn't being uh, fully rational. Yes. Um, and there can't just be this clash of values. That's 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 a crucial assumption that I think a lot of people subscribe to and something that he explicitly rejects. Yeah. And finally, that when all men have been made rational and all women, presumably, they will obey the rational laws of their own nature, natures, which are one and the same in them all. 
and so be at once holy law-abiding and holy free. So you're right. It's this assumption is just thick in in the background of ethical discussions. Um, it really does. The reason I like it is it it turns on I think the psychology behind you know, the real psychology of people is that it's very very hard to think of somebody phenomenologically. I feel like I'm right now relatively unconstrained to achieve to to. Th- have whatever value that I want to hold or whatever belief that I want to hold. Like I have all, you know, I have the internet at, at, at like my fingertips. I have like all of the, all of the information that's ever been created. If I conclude something and you disagree, it's hard. It's really, really hard for me to step outside of that and say, that you reasonably concluded what you're concluding. You must be like willfully ignorant or you must be sort of non-culpably ignorant or something, but it can't be that you, right? It would mean you have a fundamentally different psychology. If so, then we just need earlier interventions. Then we for- need, so this is the thing, yeah, I think the view that he ultimately uh, lands on is this idea that it is possible for two completely incommensurable value systems clashing and there are better and worse ways of resolving them but no one best way or no one right. way of ruling out one value ruling one value system as superior there's not just going to be like the utilitarians obviously believe this one value that we should all rationally pursue that every person should rationally pursue and that's i think um you know, that's that's the pluralism that he lands on, which I don't find depressing at all. Um, I get that there's something tragic in the sort of more technical sense of tragic when you don't have that one perfect solution that will solve all problems that you might actually have these. Well, well, you know, but what, what it effectively means is, is that might equal might will equal right. That whenever you have a fundamental clash of values that is not resolvable by and but but it does make me feel like well like okay so now we have pluralism and we have like there's no there's no shot really of getting two people in a room and hashing out and having one person agree that that they were misguided because now they're enlightened and they weren't before it's so not that there's wh- no shot of that it's just that it's possible that that won't happen it's always yeah. going to be possible that that <laughs> I mean, can't happen that, but there's and no in fact, it's not it like nobody true that it never it doesn't happen right it's just I, I remember being at, sorry to interrupt you, but this, this story is just too golden to like the, the, the hubris of that, the view that it would happen um, in the face of the facts. I was at a conference in Israel a few years ago on like moral stuff. And um, there was a guy who, whose work I respected, you know, he was like an older person. I had, I remember in graduate school, I'd read his book. You know, when you're at the end of your career, you try to like some people try to solve the, like all of the big problems. Yeah. Um, and so he gave this talk on empathy and how it was like the solution to all of these, these like issues in the world. And, you know, we're in Israel. So we're in the, even though I, I think he was Jewish, he was Jewish American. He wasn't Israeli. Somebody in the audience says, so, so like, that's all well and good, but like, seriously, like, let's apply this to Israel and Palestine. What's the solution? And the guy, you know, God bless him, I guess that he's like, well, I would put the two leaders in a room. And we would just talk about their views and their feelings. <laughs> like, just yeah, like talk about like, it out. You know, like he thought he thought you could just hash it out through like a, a proper perspective taking. It sort of is like really. Um, and yet, this doesn't rule out, and this is also true. Um, this is definitely one of those two things can be true topics where you do have these these Palestine Israeli like empathy perspective taking workshops that yeah. do improve relations and and how people think about the other group like that can work it's yeah, it just work. that I, it won't solve everything well and it won't work by by shifting the fundamental values anybody i think that studies conflict resolution knows that sometimes you cannot maximize like you have to you have to come up with strategies that will say like okay this is good enough for me this is good enough for you you know there's no no fancy equilibrium 
that's that's going to emerge Idea. right um sometimes you just like the the best we can do is the best we can do we're not failing when we do that because there is no magic answer um although mine is to for the holy land to be the 51st state of the united states of america i don't know about 51st <laughs> i think we're gonna get some other states before israel i have puerto rico and and jerusalem <laughs> that's just one one after the other um just to play devil's advocate for a second it also is true that that we're not able to do the thing that we truly want to do and that restrictions on our negative liberty you know even against our will can actually lead us to do the thing that we really want to do i mean the the, the trivial example that i use in my class sometimes is the program freedom and it's called freedom and it's interesting that it's called freedom that prevents me from going on to the internet mm. and i'll put it on and then once i've done it it won't let me go on to the internet and then maybe i'll in, in the worst cases i'm desperate to go on and it doesn't let me go on no matter how much i say okay no but really i i, I get it i'm gonna go back to work but i, I, so I want to go on right now so what it, do you masturbate to when so, the- <laughs> it's like exactly. do you have like magazines like i don't get i don't i'm, I'm puzzled <laughs> But sometimes it's the only way to get me to do what I really do, what it's true that I really do want to do. My yeah. real self, my best self, the person that I... Yeah, the little uh, Josh Nob in all of us. Like yeah. The, the, <laughs> the true self. <laughs> and the true self is good. To run the, a survey, no, yeah. what I want to do. <laughs> no, I mean, I, to- I totally agree. And I think that, that this is uh, like shouldn't give short shrift to the fact that in fact people often are prevented from from knowing even intrapsychically like you might not know for instance that you want to be healthy in the same way that you would if i if you went to boot that's why people sign up for those boot camp things like then they feel good afterwards and they're like oh i didn't know all along that like being physically fit is something that i really wanted as a goal um and but it is illustrative that our examples have been of people arriving at this sort of themselves themselves and and there's you know we did a whole we did a whole show on on behavioral economics and the paternalism that might be involved in like choosing what where to put yeah nudging and where to put you know if i if i put the healthy cookies in the middle aisle so that you know and the unhealthy ones in the bottom aisle so that you don't see them is that now instantiating in you a desire that that you otherwise would have rejected um, and it's just a trade-off, and I think this is ultimately Berlin's, I think, deep and I, I find to be totally encouraging point is that this is always going to be a trade-off. That's just the human condition. The world presents me with obstacles against my will. Sometimes the obstacles come in terms of laws from the government, but sometimes the obstacles are in the form of I don't have the opportunity to pursue this thing that I want for various reasons. In terms of the second category— that, that those opportunities, sometimes you have to restrict, the government has to restrict our negative liberties in order to allow people to do the things that they that they really want to do. Right. Know, in order and, to allow people to pursue, to have an education, the government has to force people to give money, you know, like right. they have to tax. They have to tax people against their will, from some people certainly, right? Trade-off to allow other people to pursue the ends that they want to pursue. Right. And there's always, and, and you can prioritize things. There's a great, he, he cites or paraphrases Dostoevsky, like, you know, boots before Pushkin or whatever, where, where you, you're just going to agree that, that we should restrict some people's freedom to just do whatever they want. And um, just so that we can actually bring people up to like some, some standard of living that is, um, right, so you so you can prioritize these things. The and, boots before Pushkin is, you know, the idea is people need some footwear before they work, <laughs> right. whether they have access to poet, great poetry. Right, right. So, um, so okay. So, I wanted to say a few a few things about this, like as as an out as an outsider, um, just broadly speaking. So, one, the the style of writing is just. You know, it's not it's not something I've read in a long time, you know, to to sort of give a, a, a sweeping history of political thought from the Greeks onward is, you know, 
I'm sure nowadays, like I would be so afraid of not citing, you know, that paper that was published in 97, right. you know, um, and good. And I'm glad that he doesn't, uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of what I might consider pretentious, like little uses of Latin, like that, that may not be, <laughs> that may be just, it's like Given when Ed, his background, like Oxford, right. one of the most famous and, uh, well-regarded Oxford faculty ever. It's 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 pretty free of that. It's it is. It actually is. That so much of this is just quotable stuff. This w- this was the just the Tamlarian quote. Um, I'm quoting that to assume that all values can be graded on one scale so that it is a mere matter of inspection to deter- to determine the highest seems to me to falsify our knowledge that men are free agents that represent moral decision as an operation which a slide rule could in principle perform. I love that <laughs> slide rule could perform. Um, to say that some ultimate all reconciling yet realizable synthesis duty is interest or individual freedom is pure democracy or an authoritarian state is to throw a metaphysical blanket over either self-deceit or deliberate hypocrisy. I just I love this, the, the imagery uh, throwing a metaphysical blanket um, th- that you could pull out a slide rule. <laughs> it's great. So here's the here's another one. This is a uh, he's talking about like the, this ruler, the this ruler that that believes that they have figured out what's rational for for everybody to do, and so <laughs> now takes it upon themselves to impose that on society. He says, "I issue my orders, and if you resist, take it upon myself to repress the irrational element in you which opposes reason." My task would be easier if you repressed it in yourself. I try to educate you to do so, but I am responsible for public welfare. I cannot wait until all men are wholly rational. Kant may protest that the essence of the subject's freedom is that he and he alone has given himself the order to obey, but this is the counsel of perfection. If you fail to discipline yourself, I must do so for you, and you cannot complain of lack of freedom, for the fact that Kant's rational judge has sent you to prison is evidence that you have not listened to your own inner reason that, like a child, a savage, an idiot, you are not ripe for self-direction or permanently incapable of it. Right. In in following up on that, he uh, he has a great uh, sentence where he says, Hobbes was at any rate more candid. He did not pretend that a sovereign does not enslave. He justified the slavery, but at least did not have the effrontery to call it freedom. And and that's actually a key, you know, that's a recurring idea is this, like he just wants you to be honest about what you're doing. Exactly, you know? exactly. And that's the, the, the heart of the, the motivation to make the distinction in the first place at the end of the day saying don't throw a metaphysical blanket over your hypocrisy right if you let's just be honest here like if they made if they made me supreme ruler and i said blow jobs for david um that's not pure reason <laughs> you're just being an asshole you're being a tyrant <laughs> you're being a tyrant yeah. although i do think that in the numina somewhere there, there is that rule <laughs> people's true selves everyone's true self wants to blow you <laughs> They don't. They just don't know it. And many people don't know it after multiple, multiple exercises in syllogism. <laughs> All men are mortal. You know what you need is a slide rule, and then you, then you show them. There's just a little picture of me getting a blowjob when I reveal. It's the highest value. Uh, this is how every logic class ends. I assume, having never taken one myself. Uh, all right, anything else? I think, uh, you know, we did our best with this, and uh, you're up next, right? I'm up next, so I'll, I'll, I have some ideas for what to assign to you, but, um, but you know, we're, like, we're always open to suggestions, so this will be a classic psych, psych article. Maybe it won't make it. I, I should probably pick something before this one comes out for you, but uh, we're, I think part of the fun in doing this is to get, to get suggestions for a classic paper. And to read things that we ought to have read, like ought to have read, and like I felt like I like I felt like a student again. It's yeah. a, I actually got on Tamler's case for not reading the results section, so he's promised. Now I have to find like a paper yeah. that has results. Um, <laughs> I have <laughs> promised to read every part of this psychology essay that I'm that I'm in not my, just the discussion. My guilt was I was wondering if you were expecting me to read the footnotes. 
I was like, wait, is it required in philosophy to read footnotes? Because for us, it's just like well, reviewer two like had something right. like <laughs> that, that's what a footnote is. But here, maybe I'm missing or just something. like just eighteen different citations of people without yeah. any real. Un- well, it, that's that's because you don't care enough about your H index. Um, yeah. yeah, that's because <laughs> well, I would care if somebody else gave a shit. Like if my fate in any way depended on it. All right, we'll be back next time. Thank you for joining us on Very Bad Week.